I think as an industry, we have to start separating the system of delivery from the system of transformation. We have to recognize that that there's a set of conditions that have to be present in that organization in order for those methodologies to actually be effective. Hey, this is Dave Pryor. Welcome to Leading Agile Sound Notes. It's Saturday morning, and Mike Kottmeyer and I are working hard on the weekend to try to bring some value for you while you're at home listening or in your car listening to this wherever you are. Um, we're going to talk. So, Dave, how did? Wait, no, seriously, how did you rip me into doing this on a Saturday morning? I, I have no idea. Why are we doing this? <laughs> the, the, well, do we not have anything better to do? No. <laughs> Read the newspaper, but there's nothing good happening in there. Um, this is the so, most valuable thing we could possibly so, be doing. Well, we already both separately meditated, so that's taken care of, and we're all kind of in the zone. But That's actually true. We got started 15 minutes late because we both wanted to like get ourselves centered before we got on this call together. Yep. And so there was a conversation this week in our, in our Slack channel. Dave Nicolette posted a comment, and that's kind of the, the driver of this conversation. Yep. And what Dave brought up in the post was that he sees people keep looking at systems of delivery and seeing them as systems of transformation. So we're going to talk yeah. about that. But before we do, there's a lot of people that don't have any idea what those two things are. So, Mike, how would you describe system delivery and system of transformation and, and the, the gap between those two things? Yeah. So, so system of delivery is, is what, we, is what we, we tend to think about when we think about adopting Agile. And, you know, so, so things like uh, Scrum at the team level or extreme programming at the team level or safe at scale or large scale Scrum at scale or disciplined agile delivery at scale, because these are the, the operating models by which we're going to achieve agility. Right. And so system of delivery, what are the mechanisms, what are the processes that we are going to use to deliver the products that we're, that we're putting in the market now? What's interesting, right, is that is that people like I've spent a lot of time over the last couple of years um, talking publicly about transformation. And a lot of times people think transforming to agile is really about teaching people the practices, teaching people the system of delivery, and then they'll be agile as a result of doing that. But, you know, I know that, you know, what did, what did, I think it was Ken Schwaber said at one point in time, you know, agile doesn't fix anything or scrum doesn't fix anything. It just shows you your impediments. Yeah. Well, removing those impediments is really what transformation is all about because, you know, let's say you adopt scrum at the small in the small and, and you're trying to get value out of that methodology, that system of delivery, and it's showing you all the impediments. Well, you can, you have to start removing those impediments in order for Scrum to really deliver the business benefit that you want. The, the interesting thing that we've observed over the last 10 years is that a lot of the impediments are, are, failure, are fair, fairly common. The failure modes are, are fairly common. And so what we've started to do is, is to develop what's in effect a methodology for systematically overcoming known impediments is part of the transformation strategy. Can I and can so, I interrupt for one second? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I want to try to I want to yeah. try to um, 
give a simple example, like a really, okay. really basic example from something that yeah. comes up in class all the time. People take a CSM class and they're they're learning how Scrum, the mechanics of Scrum, like that's what we're teaching. So this is the mechanics yeah. of delivering work. But all they see is we don't do that at my company. Yeah. And one really common example is every single class I've got, half the class has people that are spread across multiple teams. They have multiple roles, multiple projects. And I can say, it's not going to work if you do that. You've got to be fully dedicated. You've got to have yeah. one job. And yeah. They leave the class knowing that. They leave the class knowing yeah. they're not supposed to have that, but they don't know how to get from one side to the other. And they think that the class is also supposed to teach transformation, which is not what it's supposed to do. Yeah. Well, so so that cognitive dissonance um, kind of hit me back in my version one days as I was, um, I was going up doing some some tool, basic agile training with, with a bank up in Charlotte. And this one QA person in the back of the room, I'm talking about dedicated teams and establishing velocity and reviews and retrospectives and things like that. And, and this lady raises her hand. She goes, but like, I've got like six teams I'm a part of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. And so like she's like thinking I'm telling her go to six sprint planning meetings and right. six reviews and retrospectives and six daily standups. And I and like I But sustainably. Continue. But do it sustainably. Yeah, well it was it was early in my career, right? It was before leading Agile. So it's gosh, had to be nine, ten years ago. And it gave me pause. Like I'm kinda like thinking yeah, that's kind of a problem, right? <laughs> yeah. And so, so here's the interesting thing, right? And so this is the this is the difference. So, so we're now remember, let's anchor and know that we're talking on the small here, right? So, if I'm teaching a team how to do Scrum, I know that in order to be able to do Scrum really effectively, that that I need a dedicated cross-functional team that has ownership of their technology stack, that has a clear backlog, that can produce a working tested increment at the end of every sprint. Okay. I mean, even ownership now, of their things. technology stack is a tall order. Well, yeah, right. Or the ability to continuously integrate or continuously deploy or continuously manually test yeah. or continuously do a build or like anything, right? I mean, all these things are problems. And so, and so you kind of have like one of two approaches. I can teach people how to do Scrum, right? They can do a retrospective and go, okay, this is a problem. And then they either fix the problem. Or they, they can't fix the problem. Right. And so Scrum will show you those impediments, progressively reveal them to you. And as the team's cognition goes up, right, the team can begin to, to fix the challenges, right? But they'll but they'll inevitably land in a place where they have a complete cross-functional team, owns technology stack, produce a working tested increment at the end of every sprint, operate off of a clear backlog. That's where we're going. Well, so like what if we could look at the organization in advance and go, yeah, those conditions aren't in place. And but but the patterns necessary to get to those conditions are well understood. And what if we could approach the organization with some intentionality to say, look, we're going to teach the organization how to do scrum. Sure. But we also know that there's a lot of conditions in place that are suboptimal for scrum to actually work right. OK. And so so what if we created a plan Right. And that's provocative. Right. But what if we created a plan that said, you know, over the next three to six months, this is how we're going to begin to create the conditions such that the team can apply Scrum effectively. Can I interrupt again? Yeah, please. please. Because I'm going to give two examples of things I hear all the time. A guy told me okay. this week he, he was in the process of getting ready for this. So he was going to take transformation class. Okay. And I said, well, who teaches that? I've never even heard of a transformation class. Said, well, I'm taking safe training. Oh, interesting. Okay. And then there's all the people that, to get to what you just described, they just go down to the corner and buy a box of Jira. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Okay. So, so 
Yeah. So, so what's, what's interesting, right. Is that, I mean, it's like, and this is, this is the, the, the never ending challenge. And this is, I think why we're 20 years into agile and agile transformation and we're still talking about transformation. Right. Um, the first thing, you know, I was at, I was up at, uh, up in Richmond yesterday at the innovate Virginia conference, which, um, by the way, if you're in the area is absolutely something that you should go to. They do a great job of, um, putting that, putting that on, but, um, I was honored to, to do the keynote. And, and when you do a keynote, um, you, you have to kind of approach it differently than like a regular talk because a keynote is supposed to set context, at least in my opinion, right? It's supposed to set context. It's supposed to align vision. Um, I think if you, if you do a keynote, well, well, it should put a lot of the rest of the conference into a frame, maybe. Yeah. And so the frame that I was trying to establish was, you know, why are we sitting here almost 20 years after the signing of the Agile Manifesto still having a conversation about what Agile is and what does it take to do it? Um, I mean, it's got to it's got to drive, you know, Ken and Jeff absolutely nuts. Like this isn't that hard, guys. It's like 19 pages of general guidance about like how to revolutionize your business. Right. And 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 the reason why. Right. The reason why is because creating the conditions for for scrum is really hard. It's really difficult. And and I think the people that are going to your class, you know, they're they're looking for what are the levers do I have to pull? Yeah. You know, so when I go to back turn to turn the whole world my, upside down, right. When I go back to my team, what do I do? Yeah. Okay. And, and that's actually, that's actually part of the problem, right? Cause we have a lot of really well-meaning people out there that are creating local optimizations within their organization, um, to, to, to improve their, maybe their team's performance. But sometimes what they might do is they might end up sub-optimizing the larger organization as a whole. And so it's so, I mean, it's just like, you can just go down this rabbit hole a thousand different directions. Um, you know, one of the things that I think about, it's like, it's like in a, in a large organization at scale where we're talking about thousands or even tens of thousands of people, what is, what is the organizational metaphor for like, what is this, what is a system of delivery going to look like when we're done? Like, do we really know what the system of delivery is going to look like when we're done? And then the question becomes is that we have to be able to deliver value while we're implementing that system of delivery, right? We can't break it. And so there's going to be some things that we do today that might be kind of suboptimal, call them compensating controls, like when there's yeah. lots of dependencies between teams. What are the things that we need to do to manage those dependencies while we break them so that we can achieve the, the process state that we want in a year or two. And so, so what I'd maybe add to this whole system of delivery system of transformation is that the things that I'm going to do from a methodology standpoint today might be different than the things that I want to do in a year. The system of delivery is going to evolve and advance over the next year as I, as I improve the underlying ecosystem, as I remove impediments. Yeah. So, so while I have dependencies between teams, I need, um, a, an approach for managing those dependencies. The transformation involves breaking the dependencies so that I can begin to deprecate some of those compensating controls and go to a more pure play kind of agile framework. Can I basic guys this one too? 
Yeah, let's try it. Yeah. Okay. I want to see. And I also want to check in and see how you react to this. So so we've got somebody who's got, let's say it's an addiction, and we want to wean them off the addiction. So yeah. we're going to put them on something else to help them get off the thing that's the main cause of the problem. So if waterfall is the addiction, we yeah. showed them some things that will put structure around, like braces, right? So we yeah, can yeah. take that, that one thing away. If we just switch it, and they yeah. go cold turkey, it's going to fall apart, yeah. which is what the people in the classes are seeing. I just have to stop doing all these things. But they yeah. need support while they make the transition. And then after the supports are in place, we can start to move them in a healthier direction. Yeah. So, no, I, to I totally agree with you. Um, you'll, you'll get a kick out of this. I actually thought about you when I said this um, from stage yesterday is is I started talking about our running metaphor. And our <laughs> metaphor right? I didn't bring it's, him up. I didn't bring yeah, him up no, today. No, it's all good. Right. It always it always goes back to being a couch potato. Right. So. So, um, you know, the thing that 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 I likened it to is like, let's say you're that guy we always talk about eating chips, sedentary, unhealthy, overweight, you know, can't run a quarter of a mile. I'm kind of describing myself in my as I turn 40. Right. <laughs> um, and I go, OK, I want to be a runner. Yeah. Right. And so I pick up a book on running and I learn. I learn the right technique. I learn the right, um, I learn, learn the right, everything. I go buy the right shoes. I go get the right clothes. I go, you Join know, whatever it is. Right. Yeah. But, but I'm still, I still have impediments, right? My body isn't healthy enough to run. Right. And so it's, so I can understand the techniques all day long, but there's a lot of things that I have to do in addition to um, understanding proper running technique in order to actually become a runner. Um, maybe another, maybe another metaphor is that we talked about jujitsu that I'm, that I'm going through. So I'm about three or four months in um, to this at this point and, and learning how to do jujitsu is only like a tiny part of my journey to, to becoming somebody who's proficient at jujitsu. I'm having to work on strength. I'm having to work on flexibility. I'm having to work on cardiovascular stuff, uh, endurance. I'm having to work on um, how to control my heart rate. Maybe that's the same thing. I'm having to work on um, kind of my mindset and attitude towards going to um, the gym. Right? There's a lot of things that 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 I have to that I have to become effective at, and it's not just learning how to put somebody in an armbar. Do you think that some right. of this is just simply mentally reframing stuff for yourself and teaching yourself to look at like look at going to the gym in a different way where you might have looked at it with dread before now you look at it as a, a gift to yourself or something you're doing for your future self that will make things better. Well, yeah, right. So th so so there's lots of head games that I play with myself as an individual to get myself to do this stuff. And you know, the big the biggest part for me is I just I just like I just do what I can do on any given day, right? So I'm working on stretching and I'm working on exercising and running and biking and and all those different things and getting into the gym when I can and you know, and I'm good, right? I'm making like little baby steps of progress. The point being though is that all the stuff around learning jujitsu technique is what's going to ultimately make me an effective jujitsu person. Okay. Right. And so, so like, I think what happens is, is, um, organizationally, we, we think that we can learn the technique and then we can come back and apply the technique and that's going to make us an effective agilist. Oh, can I, wait, um, can I ask you yeah, a question? Please, please. Yeah, and sure, I might yeah. cut this out, but 
Okay. Because you just said to become an effective. What if you don't cut it out? If you don't cut it out. Well, usually when I say that, it's just my way of pretending that I'm going to cut it out. But well, so you, what I think you should do is I think you should leave it in no matter what now, because now if we cut it out, now right, it's, it's like a thing. It's All a right. pop out. So yeah. you just yeah. said to become an effective jujitsu person, and yeah. I can see a parallel between saying that and a company saying we're going to become agile. Is your goal actually to become an effective jujitsu person, or is there some larger, even more theoretical goal or or life state that you want to achieve, and jujitsu is a way of getting there? Okay, so 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 this is where meditating before our podcasts are probably going to take us to a very esoteric place. <laughs> so I'm going to go down this question with you, Dave. I have. But no I'll bring idea. it back. I'm going to tie I it back. No we're done. Coming out the other side. No, okay? I'll bring it back. I got a way back. Yeah, yeah. So for me, so for me personally, um, yeah, is the answer. I actually don't really care at all about being jujitsu. I'm doing jujitsu. I'm like 48. If I became a blue belt, that'd be awesome. Be 60 before I became a black belt. Um, I don't know that I care about jujitsu that much. Right. But I will tell you, right. It's like jujitsu has been for me, the thing that kind of glues everything together Okay. because it's like, sure, I can go and I can run and I can do my Peloton bike and I can do, you know, strength training at the gym. But, but like one of the things I've learned that jujitsu is exposed is I am like one, like awkward move away from throwing out my back. Or messing up my shoulder. Yeah. Uh, my flexibility is really poor. Like my mobility is poor. And so what jujitsu kind of does is it, it's like in order to be good at jujitsu, you know, you have to, you have to be strong and you have to be cardiovascularly fit, but you also have to be flexible. Okay. And, you know, you have to understand how to move your body and things like that. And so the, 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 the two things that I get out of jujitsu that are, that are just go, that transcend learning how to wrestle somebody to the ground is an understanding of, of my body and how it moves as well as, um, and this, and we've talked about this before, but like, I, I think like I'm starting to connect the dots between like guitar playing, um, jujitsu, how we consult. I think there's some truths yeah. that it's helping me see that transcend nice. discipline, you know? Absolutely. So, all right. Yeah. yeah so the, yeah. the, the tie back to for me is okay. that, a company says it wants to be agile. They want to go through agile transfer. They don't actually want to be yeah. agile. They want what agile gives them. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Okay, I do my cool. finger yeah. exercises every day, not because I want to do my finger exercises, but I want my yeah. hands to be nimble so I can play the shit I want to play when it's time to play it. Yeah. No, that's actually that's actually a great point. Like, so one of the things, Bang. I Saturday sure, morning. I wasn't sure you were going to pull this off on a Saturday morning, but that's, <laughs> that's awesome, man. So, no, it's good, right? So, so one of the first things I always ask an audience, and I'll go like, I go like, look, it's like, why are we doing this? Yeah. Right. The point of doing this is not to adopt Scrum. It's not to it's not to learn how to do daily standup meetings. Like those things are useful only to the extent that they help us achieve business agility. And I think, and I think the hypothesis amongst a lot of practitioners is if I do these things, right, if I implement this system of delivery, then I will get the agile or the agility on the backside of it. And I, I think what we're seeing is in practice, um, and I'm not saying it's universal, right? I'm sure, I know there's a lot of people that are doing this really well at this point, but it's like, there's a lot of people out there that are going through the motions of doing the the agile things, but because they're not fundamentally improving, right? They're not breaking the dependencies and right. things like that. 
um, they're not achieving the actual benefit of it. Yeah. Does that make sense? Totally and I'll bring it back sense. to my jujitsu thing, right? That's kind of fascinating. <laughs> it's like one big loop. It, no, it is. It's, 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 it's Everything pretty, is connected, it's, man. It's pretty crazy <laughs> when you think about it, right? So one of the things that got me into this is like I've got to, as you might imagine, I have a crazy schedule. And so sometimes, you know, mornings are hard. Sometimes nights are hard. Sometimes I'm on the road. Sometimes whatever. And so like to maintain some sense of continuity, most of the jujitsu stuff I've been doing is in like private lessons, right? Yeah. So so I'm working with this instructor's awesome guy named Sean Coleman, and he he um, he uh, um, you know helps me with my technique. Okay. Okay. But what he's fundamentally doing while I'm learning the technique is exposing me, right? It's like, I can't roll that way. My body doesn't move that way. It hurts when I do this. So he's and showing so, you the broken parts the same way scrum would show an organization. the broken Exactly. Parts. Right. Exactly. And then like I go into like a, like a more general class with like a, like with a big body of students or whatever. And, and like all of those limitations, they just crush me. Right. And so it's like, I can, I can do the technique perfectly when now, okay. So if Sean listens to this, he'll go like, man, Mike, you're not actually perfect, but you know what I mean? You get the point, right? I can do the technique reasonably well in a controlled environment, right? I understand it. But when that technique meets a real opponent who has internalized the technique, who has internalized the technique or, you know, just is more fit or athletic or flexible, has better mobility than I do. Yeah. Right. And then, then I, I don't have, I mean, like literally I had this, this, you know, hundred you know pound girl, like knock me on my butt. Um, when I couldn't do anything about it. Right. <laughs> like, she made you her bitch. 20 pound guy. Right. Yeah. And it was crazy. Right. So, yeah. So it's, so it's interesting because it's like, because it's like the technique takes you to a point, but you have to, you have to allow the technique to expose the failure mode. Okay. okay. Dave, I'm going to blow your mind here, man. I think I made like a cool connection. So, so, but like, here's the interesting thing, right? I could show up at jujitsu class every single day and I could start doing jujitsu and I could, just I know get, where you're going. <laughs> I could just get random injuries all the time. Yep. Oh, my shoulder hurts today. So I'm going to work on my shoulder. Oh, that's an impediment. Oh, my knee is messed up today. Yeah. Oh, you know, I'm going to fix that. Oh, I can't move this the way I want to. Or I can go, Hey, I want to do jujitsu. Here's the general class of like mobility and health that I need to achieve. So rather than just learn jujitsu and let it expose all my flaws, right? I can kind of look at myself and go, yeah, here's probably the top five or six things you actually need to go work on. And so jujitsu, okay, this is awesome. Jujitsu <laughs> of delivery, right? The process of getting my body to the to the health it needs to be an effective jujitsu person yeah. is a system of transformation. So you need to go send okay. Daniel out into the yard and tell him to wax the car and paint the fence. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So everybody knows that Daniel's my middle son. No, no, Daniel's son, no? Karate Kid. Oh, the Daniel on Karate Kid. Not oh, your okay. son. I'm oh, thinking of Ralph Macchio. Get out to the yard and get him to start waxing my cars and painting my fence. Well, that like too, that. but so. I was thinking of Ralph Macchio. Point, point, point taken nonetheless, though. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. No, but it's interesting, right? So let's let's bring this up a level <laughs> to a point that's relevant for anybody who might be listening to this, right? Is is I think as an industry, we have to start separating the system of delivery from the system of transformation. We have to start acknowledging that just because 
you know, Ken and Jeff stamp scrum or Dean stamps safe or boss and Craig stamp less or Ambler stamps. Dad is like the way to do it. Yeah. We have to recognize that, that there's a set of conditions that have to be present in that organization in order for those methodologies to actually be effective. And, and the other thing I would say is while I might not be the jujitsu person that I want to be in a year, right? I can start doing jujitsu now. And then, and then as I improve my, my physical health, then more things will be available to me later on. So there's things that I might have to do in addition to scrum or safe to compensate for the fact that my organization isn't healthy enough to totally pull that off yet. Yeah. Okay. And then as I, as I create greater organizational health by breaking dependencies, increasing encapsulation, um, you know, reducing the need for orchestration, things like that, then, you know, then I can become the practitioner. That's the word I was looking for this whole time as a jujitsu practitioner. Um, the, as I can become a practitioner, that's more effective. And, and what I, I think that what we're, what we're settling on as a company is within leading agile is that, is that we don't have to just get random injuries over the next couple of years. Yeah. Right? We know the things that are necessary to improve in order to achieve the state of agility we want. So why just keep running ourselves into the wall over time? Okay. Now, so I asked that question, but, but we know the answer to the question, right? Because the practitioners often that want to do agile don't have the ability or the agency within their organizations yeah. to make the changes that they want to make, right? So the constant thing, like when you and I get on the phone, like when we've done like the ask Mike things or whatever, yeah. right? It's like, you know, the classic questions like, well, how do I do scrum when I don't have a product owner that can write a backlog? <laughs> Yeah. And you're kind of like, you don't, right? yeah. I don't know what to tell you. You do it badly. You know? you <laughs> it do doesn't it work. Badly, right? <laughs> you know, what do I, you know, how do I do, how do I do scrum if like, I can't, um, if I can't, um, if I can't develop a team that can produce a working test and increment at the end of the sprint. Yeah. You, you don't, right. You don't, right. You've got to create those conditions for the methodology to be effective. And so when you don't have the agency within your organization, right, you're looking for like the tip or the trick that's going to unlock it. And, you know, one of the things that we've worked really hard over the last eight or nine years is, is to get, is to educate the right level of decision maker in an organization about what, what are the changes necessary in order to be able to to actually leverage, right? Yeah. So you want to do, you want to have business agility. What does what does an organization look like that actually achieves business agility, right? As a leader, how do I create systematically? How do I build that kind of an organization? Because most organizations aren't that today. So can I can I go back to the jujitsu thing for a second? Yeah, sure. So somebody would come to um, your 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 guy Sean and say, "I want to learn jujitsu," and he might say, "Okay, this is great, but let's go talk to this person over here because they're going to get you ready to be able to learn jujitsu, and that person's going to have you do cardio and yoga and change your diet and start meditating and do all the other things you have to do to get yourself in a place where you're able to actually come back to Sean 
and make progress with what he can teach you. Well, well, the reality, the reality is, is that, is that, you know, how this operates in practice is that, is that we're, we're continuing to do jujitsu together, right? right? I'm continuing to learn technique. Um, and, and sometimes I feel like I set myself up at odds with the industry about technique. Like I don't have any problem with safe and I don't have any problem with scrum. I don't have any problem with combine. I mean, we, we leverage that stuff all the time. Right. And I'm deeply appreciative for the thought leaders that created that stuff. And, and I know sometimes I come off as antagonistic where what I'm, what I'm antagonistic with is the idea that those things in and of themselves are sufficient. Right. You know? And so without, or, the, or the end state. Or the end state. And, and, you know, one of the things I've been talking about for a long time is this, this idea that, you know, we, we, we talked about it briefly today that scrum doesn't fix anything. It just shows you your impediments. Well, what if you don't have the, the agency within your organization to actually fix the things? Or what if it isn't economically viable to fix the things? You know, one of the examples that I use kind of flippantly is let's say you're in a banking environment and you're dealing with a 50 year old legacy mainframe that over the years has become an architectural mess. It takes three months to test it when you change anything to make sure it doesn't break. And you go, okay, what's, what's scrum going to do for me in that context? Well, it's going to show me that I'm sitting on top of a mess. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, we kind of knew that walking in. Right. Um, I don't need scrum to show me that. Um, and so you can look at that. You can look at that from, you know, from a strategic perspective and say, well, we know we want teams. We know we have to get clear backlog. We know we have to produce a working test and increment. We want to shoot towards continuous integration delivery, you know, constant deployment, feedback, right, all that kind of stuff. And so we say, well, what, what would I have to change in on that on that legacy platform to be able to achieve that? Right. And over what time horizon would it happen? And then you can look at it and you can go, okay, well, so here's the things that I can do today that will, that will help with agility. And it could be things like, you know, breaking big projects into small projects. It could be as simple as, you know, how you define requirements and, and the kinds of dependencies you inject through your requirements management process. Um, it could be things like, um, you know, gosh, like, you know, the, well, the patterns at which you're handing off between development and testing, right? There's, there's things that you can do to increase agility that aren't necessarily like Scrum. They're so not necessarily I, agile. I want to ask you yeah. a question about this. You, you yeah. mentioned a few minutes ago, maybe there's somebody who um, doesn't have the agency to implement the changes that they want. Yeah. So I get a lot of those people and yeah, they want to know, how do I, how do I make senior management want to do this? So if they're in that state, they can see the gap. They know the organization has to transform. They don't have the agency within the organization. Yeah. Is what you're talking about also something that might, and maybe not, but would it either show them how to go about having those conversations or teach them how to raise those points to management or show them what kind of stuff that they care about that they could focus on? Or, yeah. or does management already yeah. have to be bought into we have to change stuff? You know, man, that's just a, that's a, that's a tough question, right? Um, you know, because as, as a former practitioner, um, you know, I don't know that, that I was particularly influential at getting my senior executives to flip, right. you know, a lot of, a lot of the points of view and the way I talk about this stuff has been 10 to 15 years of like really dedicated 
thinking about it. Yeah. Right. Messaging, you know, I've gotten out, they speak publicly. We do podcasts, we blog, right. I've honed these messages. I've gone out and sold work to 250 executives. Right. I mean, it's just like, it's like on and on. So, yeah. you know, so it's like, and stumbled a lot along the way too. And, and stumbled a, a lot, right. We've lost, yeah. we've lost as I'm sure as many deals as we want. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's like sometimes, sometimes even if you're, even if you, you're right and you have the perfect message, right. Maybe it's not the perfect message for that person or something, right. There's, I mean, it's a thousand different things. And so I guess I say that to say that I have like deep empathy for the practitioner on the ground. Yeah. Okay. Um, a lot of times when I'm working with a practitioner, that that is is stuck you know they don't have the agency maybe they don't have the access right they don't have the ability to influence those leaders right they don't get a seat at that table um you know a lot of times it's a matter of understanding what the failure mode is okay and being able to communicate the impact of that failure mode um like i'll give you like a like a really simple example it's like one of the classic problems that we have is you know you have a team that has a gigantic backlog that has like a fixed delivery date and then but they're constantly getting interrupted with defects yep and things like that and so you ask the you ask them you say okay well what's more important to you do you want to make and meet commitments or do you want to be able to respond to change right because those two things compete with each other the more that I'm willing to accept variable work into the sprint, the less likely I am to be able to stabilize velocity. Yeah. Okay. Just, it's just the physics of scrum, right? And so, and so, but, but a lot of times practitioners are in an impossible place because leadership has made these commitments and they have these hard dates and they have to deal with the urgent stuff because maybe it's like productions down kinds yeah. of things. Right. And so, you know, and so when somebody is trapped, you know, I want to put them in the most powerful position they can possibly be in. And so to me, the most powerful position is to start measuring the impact of kind of the variability in the backlog. You know, we committed 80% of our sprint to doing the, the project work. We maintained 20% of our sprint to be able to deal with, um, fixed stuff, um, in this particular, or excuse me, the variable stuff and this particular sprint, half our sprint was interrupt driven work, which means that instead of 80% of our capacity, we only allocated 50% of our capacity to the fixed work. That's causing this delay, which is going to propagate these kinds of trade-offs, right? And you start communicating to, to the executive team in data, the impact of the decisions they're making. Yeah, data with the story, explaining what it, what the yeah. result of it is. <clears throat> like one of my earliest experiences with this is, um, you know, back in my my project management days, I was running this rather large project, and 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 I was a pretty good project manager back in the day, right? And even in the Gantt chart world of, um, you know, waterfall type things, so I had a relatively solid Gantt chart, and it showed that we were going to take six months to build this thing. I knew the staffing that was allocated. I had pretty good estimate. Like I, I was pretty, I was pretty comfortable this plan. And the VP comes to me and goes, okay, so customer wants us to, um, wants us to be able to pull the plan in two months. And I go, and he goes, can you do it? And I said, well, like, let's talk about that. Right. So, so here's the time, here's the cost, here's the scope. Um, do we want to, what assumptions do we want to change? Do we have more mainframe developers we can throw at it? Nope. That's all you got. Do we want to assume that the, that the developers are going to work 
80 hours a week instead of 40 hours a week? Nope, don't want to assume that. Is there anything that we can take out of the scope to reduce the amount of work? Nope, nothing we can do there, right? And you walk through all the variables and I go, well then, if you're not willing to change any of the assumptions, I think it would be a bad decision to change the date. And they looked at it and they went, okay, we'll hold the date. <laughs> See, but that's, I mean, that's the thing. You just, you give them a logical choice, then they can make a decision that they spaz well, yeah, out right? because they just want stuff and they don't know how to figure it out. Well, well, that's what I, that's what I tell people, right? Or that's what I would, would tell. It's like, it's like the executives want, they want, and that's fair, right? I mean, if they have a business need to, to, to reduce the, the time by two months, that's a fair ask, right? I don't have to be a victim of that ask. But I also know that the physics of time, cost, and scope don't allow me to pull rabbits out of the air, right? Yeah. And so, so if I have data, then I can go and I can say, look, this isn't my business. This is your business. Which, which levers do you want me to pull in order to help you be most effective? What are your trade-offs you want to make? Right. And, and, and I even asked him point blank in that one, this is 15 years ago now, right? I asked him point blank. I said, do we want to assume that the developers are sandbagging and take out hours out of the estimate? Right. And they said no to that too. Right. So what they're saying is I trust my developers and I don't um, trust them. <laughs> well, well, no, there was in this case saying, I trust my developers. I don't want to overwork them. I don't have any flexibility with scope. Um, I don't have any more to give you. And you know what, Mike, I believe your plan and I believe what you've done. So, um, I'll go back and tell the customer they can't have it two months early. Yeah. Right. And, and so to me, I think, I think practitioners get in trouble quite a bit because we're not prepared to have data driven conversations okay. around this stuff. Okay. And so, so, so as we, as we kind of near the end of our time, it's like, I want to make sure that we, can we I add one this. thing? Can I add yeah, one thing yeah, to that please. before you just, so. yeah. Because yeah. this has been stuck in my head since you said it. So there are – I have worked with lots of traditional managers where given all that data, they still bang yeah. their fist on the say, table and say, and make it happen anyway. And there well, are well, project that's, that's, managers. There's project managers who don't, for whatever reason, they're not able to stand up to that. So it's the data okay. plus being able to stand with it. Okay. So before I before I answer – before I comment on your comment – Yeah. Um. I want to acknowledge we're off topic and I want to allow a few minutes to tie it back to the big story that's that we're talking about today. Totally okay? acceptable. Yes. Because here's the deal, right? So to me, that's like an integrity issue. Yeah. Okay. Because, because you, because like, so, okay. So let's say I was in that situation and the, the guy says to me or girl or whoever says, okay, we're not going to give you more staffing. We're not going to overwork people. We're not going to take out scope. We're not going to, um, challenge their hours and say it's smaller, but you know what, Mike, it's your job. Just go figure out how to make it work. Right. Well, well, you're in a situation where you have a leader that is, that is low integrity at that point, because, because if they've hired you to be a project manager, like I, what is it in the PMI code of contact, right? It's like, we have to tell the truth. <laughs> right. To be in PMP, you have to tell the truth. Right. And yes. I would get myself candidly. I would get myself on. I ask people all this all the time. I go, is it better to say yes and yeah. fail Do or is it better to, to tell the truth? Like, like literally what's politically better for you? Because, because if we're not going to deal in reality, yeah, what you're basically saying is we have to, I have to, I have to locally optimize my outcome so I don't get fired. Yeah. Right. Is, is really what you're saying. Um, it's so like my bent has always been to take the high integrity approach. Right. And the high integrity approach is tell the truth. And and so if if I sat down and said, here's your six variables and that manager said to me, well, I'm not going to take responsibility for any of those variables 
but I'm going to hold you accountable for achieving the outcome. <laughs> I want. Yes. Right. I'm like, okay, cool. Right. So, so now I know that I'm working for a low integrity manager who's totally willing to hang me out to dry. Yeah. And my first point of decision is, do I want to work here anymore? Yeah. Right? My first point and is my to next point update is, my, my resume. My next point is, okay, if I choose yes, right, then maybe I'm in a market where there's not a lot of jobs and I just have to do the best I can do, then, then what I'm going to do is I am going to, I'm going to go, okay, we're going to do the best we can. And I'm going to have scope review meetings and I'm going to look for ways to, if we can simplify the requirements, I'm going to try to optimize delivery. I'm going to do everything we can. I'm going to report progress. And, and sometimes the best you can do is to deliver to what you said was possible, even if it's not to what the manager wanted. And if you can go back and say, look, we told you this is what it was going to take. You wanted it earlier. We said we'd give it our best shot, but this is this is how it played out, and it was exactly what I told you. Like to me, that's the highest integrity play that you can do. Yeah. And if you're willing as a project manager, right, or as a is a well, you get that feeling of self righteousness, which is nice to have too. Well, yeah, yeah I'm not <laughs> with you, but you, but you know what I mean, right? It's yeah. like, but it's like you have to tell the truth, right? And and if you tell the truth and you get in trouble for it, then you just know the kind of organization that you're working in. Uh, yeah, you know that that's right? probably not the right place for you. <laughs> Yeah, you have to choose to be brave or choose to to, to not be brave. Yeah. But but okay, so I'm gonna tie it, I'm gonna tie it up to Bring our us home. system of delivery system of transformation. Herein lies the problem, right? Why do people find themselves in these kinds of situations? Right? And it, the this the reason why is because they don't have the right ecosystem for their system of delivery. To work. They don't have the right ability to balance capacity and demand. They don't have the right ability to understand their throughput as an organization. Yeah. Right. And so there's a lot of things that are broken in that enterprise. And whether you're doing waterfall, ad hoc, agile, something else, right? It's like if there's not congruence between all that stuff, you find people that are in impossible situations making irrational requests. Yeah. And so, so the hope of our industry is that by teaching people scrum or safe, it's going to fix that organizational dysfunction. It may or may not. Right. What I think we're learning after 20 years of doing this is that it doesn't always, at least it does sometimes, right? There's probably enough anecdotal evidence that gives us hope, but in practice, there's, it's, it's not, I mean, a not everybody's going to be Spotify or Uber. Yeah, there you go. Right. And so it's, so the, the challenge that we have as responsible practitioners or responsible leaders of organizations is to understand very clearly how we're going to get from a kind of organization that's only going to go through the motions of doing agile to becoming the kind of organization that can actually exploit the methodology to its economic advantage. And, and just like we talked about in jujitsu, just like we talked about in running, all those different things, right? There is a transformation of the body, a transformation of the organization that has to happen before the, that methodology can be effectively deployed, Yeah. right? To, to good effect, right? And so that process you know, what we're, what we, we've come to believe is that that process is actually knowable. I don't have to just show up in the gym and injure myself repeatedly, you know, to expose my weakness. Like you look at me, it's pretty obvious to understand what I need to work on before I even get in the gym for the first time. Okay. Right. 
And and so so what what I think we're starting to see is two parallel tracks. There's there's the methodology and the things that we're going to do to deliver within the constraints we have. And then there's another track that is how do we systematically overcome the impediments that are getting in our way? And and I don't think and I think the belief historically has been is that those impediments are not knowable and that we just have to encounter them and then resolve them as we get to them. And what I would suggest is that like 80 to 90 percent of them are absolutely knowable and can be approached in a planful way. And, 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 oh, and if that plan and if that plan means. I build a backlog and I start burning them down systematically in a more agile fashion. Cool. Right. Sometimes I could build a Gantt chart to go do that. You know what? I don't care. Right. It's, it's, it's not, I'm not being dogmatic about how we overcome them, but I'm telling you the things that have to be changed are knowable. And so we should stop pretending that they're not knowable and that we have to keep stubbing our toe all the time. And acknowledge that we need it, uh, a, a way, a system or something to help us get there in the same way that you need a system to deliver product. Yeah, I mean, the, what's really at, at root underneath all of this stuff is that, you know, it's a silver bullet mindset, right? People want to say, yeah, send all these people to training and it's just going to work, right? You know, send everybody to Scrum class and, and it'll, it'll be okay, right? And, 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 and again, it's like anything else in life. You know, you didn't become, you know, the overweight guy sitting on the couch who couldn't run a quarter of a mile overnight. It took a not, lot of effort. It took a, it took a lot it took a lot of inattention right it took a lot of ignoring the data right and and so getting to a place where you can where where you can become the kind of organization that's going to be effective is it's going to take work right it's going yeah. to take time and it's not an easy fix and so system of transformation is a harder sell because it acknowledges that there's actually things that we have to overcome yeah. in order to be able to to be the kind of organization we want to be so I'm going to suggest that we make this the first of a couple podcasts, and I think okay. that the second one, the next one, we should focus on the planfully idea and talk about okay. how to go through that. Because that way, you know, now that we've introduced the topic, we can continue with how to go about doing it. So in a couple weeks, we can put up another one. Cool. Are you making a commitment to our market? I'm to, committing uh, you to our market. Yes, that we will okay. do this. <laughs> I'm in, man. I'm cool. In. All right, Mike, thank you very much, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your Saturday. Okay, you too, man. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Thanks.